welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. I'm John Tomlinson and I'm here today with Matt Summers. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm good, John. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. Not too bad. You're uh, you're a bit of a wizard when it comes to actually training and coaching skills, which is a particular interest of mine. I think coaching is one of my favorite parts of the job, certainly okay. in, the, in the top two or three parts of the job. And, and I really do enjoy doing coaching skills training, actually. So uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. But uh, do, you want, do you want to just tell us why you specialize in that particular field? I guess the, the easiest way to answer that is because I come from a corporate background. So I, I worked in, in high street banking when I was introduced to coaching uh, more than 20 years ago now. And I remember thinking as I found myself sitting on a coaching skills training course that had I been managed that way, and things would have been a lot better for me. Uh, I'd have been a, a happier, more engaged employee, I think. Uh, and it really struck me as, I suppose, the, the modern, up-to-date way of, uh, of managing or, or leading people. So since I then went on to leave corporate life and, and set up by myself, I've always been more interested in the idea of the, the manager or the leader as coach within the organization than bringing in coaching skills from outside. Although, you know, as most people in the field do, uh, I too do some one-to-one exec-type coaching. But as I say, the idea that this is uh, co- coaching as part of leadership style, I suppose, is is the thing that most interests me. Well, that's really interesting. That's really, I, I sort of recognize as well, when you look back and you think, God, if I just had that kind of management at that point in my career, just how transformational it could be, you know, it, it's kind of counterfactual. You never quite know, but it, it's certainly something I've thought about at certain points in my life as well. Well, well, this is it. And and I guess it's it's really interesting to think as well that here we are, 20 years later from when I thought around these things and if you pop on LinkedIn and some of the other social networks there's still people saying now we need this as the prevailing management style it's going to be the only thing that that helps us recover post-COVID we're still far too much command and control uh, in, in management ranks if that's even a useful term anymore so I think things have moved on a bit since I first got involved but there's there's still a way to go. Well I'm intrigued by this because you've got five do's and five don'ts as the structure that we're using for today's yeah. chat. So I'm a little bit nervous about finding out I've been doing it wrong all this time. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, um, I'm sure you, you, you haven't because uh, at the risk of going off a, a, another tangent, I'm not sure with something like this, there are too many hard and fast rights and wrongs. I've, I've never found it to be a topic that lends itself to kind of black and white definitions. You know, I, I think that coaching... And my experience would suggest the training in coaching skills as well is very much in the realms of art and not science. But there are some things that I've discovered from having done a lot of this that, that tends to work and, and tends not to. So uh, hopefully that's pe- useful to people listening in. Well, there's at least one of the don'ts that I know that I have done. So <laughs> I'll decide okay. at the time whether I'm going to be honest about it. So. Okay. <laughs> let's let's okay. start with, we'll, we'll do the do's first. All right. So let's uh, let's go through those. Do you want to just quickly say what all five are, and then we'll actually go through them one by one in a little bit more detail? Yeah. So I've got on on my note here that the, the five do's that I thought might be interesting to go through. Uh, firstly, to teach coaching principles and not just the grow sequence or similar. To include skills practice, but not necessarily role play, and it, it'll be interesting to get into what the differences are with those. Uh, Recognise that no one is a beginner in this particular subject to run your coaching course in a coaching style and then to include a follow-up session or even individual calls if you can. 
Okay. All right. Some of those feel kind of generally useful anyway, I would I would say for any kind of training session, but some of them obviously very specific to coaching. But let, let's start with the first one, because you said about uh-huh. teaching coaching principles, not just grow or similar. And this is interesting because mm. the first coaching training I ever did was very much structured around the grow model, which is a good model, I think, but it didn't really go into those principles. So this is really interesting. Okay. Yeah. So um, let me just launch a, launch a caveat that I'm certainly not suggesting that grow or some of its um, variations aren't useful. And I think they should grow or something like it should make an appearance in any decent piece of coaching skills training, but that there is more to it than that. So um, I, I was very lucky um, in my coaching journey to use that, that word. I'd spend some time one-on-one with Sir John Whitmore, who I guess a lot of people listening into this will will, will know as a mover and shaker in in the coaching circles. And and he 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 said to me that um, Matt, without an understanding of underlying principles, grow or any of its variants are useless. Now, what I sort of took that to mean is that just simply asking questions, whether they're organised around grow or or, or anything else. It's not enough, John, you know, that what we really need to be able to do, and I suppose what separates the very skillful coaching style manager from, from others would be to handle the answers. I mean, the grow questions are only supposed to provoke thought and, and commentary in a dialogue, but the learning will occur or happen for the individual as they ponder on the answers that they're giving. And that's the, the, the skill of the great uh, coach, I think. So this is what I mean by we've got to teach principle as as well as the mnemonics and the, the structure and all those other things. And what would you say are the core principles? Yeah, well, again, I suspect there is uh, more than one way of articulating these things. But to, to me, they boil down to three. Now, the first of those would be awareness, that all change begins with an awareness of of how things are now. So a good coaching question is going to have people paying attention to uh, what's happening to them, what they're experiencing, what's going on around them. So awareness would be the first one. Next would be responsibility. This being the idea that it's the the coachee, if I can use that word, you know, the person who is being coached, that in the end truly does have responsibility. Uh, in other words, they're the ones that can take action. They're the ones that can make a change. So offer responsibility and then then trust. I, I remember once observing some coaching going on in an organisation and the person assigned the role of the coach was doing a great job of working through the, 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 the grow questions. But it was very clear to me that they were simply going through the motions. You know, so something that happened in this organization and everyone kind of participated in it. But there was no real engagement. And, and I thought that that was probably because there wasn't a lot of trust going on. You know, it felt as if this was coaching that was being done to people instead of coaching that is being done uh, with people so so for me uh, john it's those three things awareness responsibility trust art easily remembered as the as the art of coaching yeah i was going to say that did form quite a neat uh, acronym oh, yes. in the end anyway didn't it? i would with a and r at the beginning i wonder where you were going with it i was, I was hoping there wasn't well, an s next but uh you know we're, we're we're trainers aren't we so there has to be an acronym what are we 10 minutes in it's we've not done too badly if this is the, the first one yeah, that's true. That's true. I do. And you say it fits in with the art of coaching as well, which is which is quite a nice uh, way of saying it as well, of course. Yeah. And so for me, grow goal, reality, options, will or, or way forward is a way of interacting with those principles, you know, in and of itself. It, it, it's not much use. And I think, frankly, kind of any fool could just reel off some questions on a on a handout organized around the, the, the grow model or whatever. But the, 
the, the, the real uh, understanding I come, uh, I think comes from knowing what it is that those questions provoke in the other person. Let's go on to the second one, because you said mm. include skills, practice, but not role play. And as you say, it'd be interesting to work out what the difference is, because quite often I call role play skills practice because people say they hate role play, but they quite like <laughs> skills practice. And there's, very, yeah. there is, there's as much difference, I guess, as you want to make. But what do you mean by the difference between them? Yeah, and I, like you, I suspect, if I'm not thinking about it very closely, probably use the, the terms interchangeably. Uh, which is fine. And I, I want to go back to something you, you said earlier on as well, which is sort of some of these things are, are probably quite general tips for training per se. And I, I, I get that, you know, um, I think all of us who consider ourselves training in a, in a specialist area think it's special, but it, it isn't really, you know, a lot of this stuff would, would apply to uh, any, any kind of training. So on the matter then of role play versus skills practice, where I draw a distinction is that role play to me is fictionalized. You know, it's the classic thing of you are the manager and here's your situation. And then somebody else gets a, a brief with, with you are the, the problem person or whatever. And here's, here's your situation. And they, they, they play that out usually with quite a lot of guidance and prompts as to what's actually going to be said and how that will be followed up. Now, I think that those things have their place in training. But what I found with coaching skills training is that it is better to, to have people coach each other on real life, live, uh, work-related or business-related issues. And, and to, fla to flag in advance that they're going to have to do that um, in the joining instructions or whatever, John, you know, so that people arrive on the training or jump on the, uh, on the webinar session uh, with some idea of what it is that they'd like to explore in those practice sessions. Right. So that's what you're, it, it's about the reality. You're not playing a role. You're actually just being yourself, but you are, at the end of the day, you're practicing the skills. Yeah. So it, again, at the risk of semantics, hence the, the skills practice as opposed to role play. I, I found that the, both, both the coach and the coachee on the training session, the observer, if that's how you want to run it, all seem to gain more from the exercise when it's real. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes that makes complete sense, of course, because if you're bringing things that are real, they're real scenarios for you. And that's presumably the issues that you are facing. But I guess the skill with role or writing a good role play is the fact that you are deliberately covering certain cases that you know might come up. Therefore, you're introducing broader ideas rather than just how I see my own current narrow challenges at the moment. Is that an issue? Yeah, I, I think that... Um... I think there's some spin-offs as well when, when we do it this way. One is that for, for people who might be a little bit doubtful, I suppose, that a coaching approach is going to work for them, they get more evidence that it can work. I mean, I, I've seen some really great coaching going on uh, in, in practice sessions at the end of maybe only a day's input, you know, where people have had very little opportunity really to ponder on what they're learning and they they quickly get into one of these practice sessions and it actually fundamentally does a lot of good that that's a nice thing to see it's a sort of a a, a happy byproduct of setting up the session well i guess you know when you ask really one of those zinger questions and somebody just really kind of sits back and looks up and just sort mm. of goes off into deep thought and you think you know that's it you know you pat yourself on the back think boom i just asked a fantastic question yeah you're not going to get yeah. that if somebody's just playing a role are you well, all I can say is I haven't found that to, to, to be the case. Uh, no, I think if on um, sort of skills training, if you want to really refine a particular, I don't know, a particular technique 
or a particular phraseology or parts of a script that you really need to get off pat, then I guess the traditional sort of scripted role play is probably quite helpful with that. But as I say, I, I find um, in these sorts of sessions, let people go with, with something that's live. It, it requires more skill from the facilitator, frankly, because it's um, it's kind of training without the aid of a safety net, isn't it? Because you, you're not in control of where these conversations might go. But it, it gives the participants a much more uh, true, uh, I suppose, experience of what it's like to have conversations this way. And on that point, and you mentioned this before, would you recommend usually having an observer? Yeah, I think the classic trios work works best. I mean, inevitably, you'll find that you've got the wrong the wrong number that doesn't cascade nicely. It doesn't divide phrases. by three, yeah. Yeah, you know, so you, you have to leave two people to their own devices sometimes or put, put yourself in, in the mix and play the observer role. But yeah, I mean, this is something trainers always having to juggle. But that, that classic sort of three ways, somebody's doing the practicing, somebody's being practiced upon, uh, and somebody else is observing, capturing those moments and being ready to feedback yeah that that works really really well for coaching yeah i would agree i think for any kind of skills practice the importance of the observer because somebody's because they get sort of into the conversation don't they and you do need someone to sort of police the process and try and remember what it is we're supposed to be learning yeah that's true now the only if you put something quite useful in my in my head there john the only I'm sorry about red that. flag there is no that, that's okay the the only red flag is i have found as well that if you are if you're doing skills practice rather than role play, so these are on real life issues, what you can find is as the person who is due to be coached starts talking about what's going on for them, then the other two people, coach and observer, go, oh, God, really? You know, that's that's terrible to say some more about that. And they, they can kind of get sucked into the issue, particularly if you're doing some in-house training and everyone's from the, the, the same organization. So that's that's one thing to be careful of when you're doing real life practice that sometimes the issue can kind of take on a life of its own yeah that's a really good point isn't it yeah that's I, I, i've seen that happen as well but i think that's all the more reason to have the observer who can at least yeah, try and bring that track. back onto yeah. It. Yeah, yeah yeah although as you say they may be sucked in on it i guess let's move on to the third one then which was recognize that no one is a beginner in this subject well i don't think so i mean um I guess people might have a, a a different point of view, but this this sort of chimes really with a bit of a light bulb moment that I had some years ago, and and I use uh, in quite a lot of the stuff that I put up on um, on LinkedIn and my blogs. And this is the idea that um, leaders are of people are coaches, whether they like it or not. And it might be possible to do that well or badly, but what it isn't possible to do is to kind of duck that responsibility. And I think that that hit home for me. I would do. Um, other leadership training as well and you would regularly have the group talk about the qualities of effective leadership and then when I'm doing my coaching skills training I'm having them talk about the qualities of effective coaches and I began to discover that the two lists were often <laughs> almost identical you know so hence this thought well, it's it's the same thing and so if I'm doing coaching skills training and I've got a you know, the classic sort of group of uh, 12 people arranged in Rome or, or the online equivalent of that. I think if they've been leading or managing people for any length of time, then they've been doing some coaching. I mean, whether consciously or not, uh, they have. You know, they've been trying their best to, to get results out of people. Thus, they've, they've been coaching, in my view. And I think with a topic like coaching as well, again, not uniquely, but um, it's, it's not always the case that 
you, you have to recognise you've got to sort of honour what it is that people bring to the table as they walk through the door. It's not all going to be new information for them. Uh, they'll have thought about some of the ideas that your training is going to go on to address long before they, they walk through the door or dial into the call. So uh, I guess what I mean really by this, no one is a beginner, is just sort of acknowledge that and honour it and, and build on what's already there rather than imagine that this is going to be sort of totally new concepts and information for people. So in terms of actually making that mean something in terms of how you deliver the training, you're just simply saying acknowledge it, talk about it and and build on it. There's not a specific action that we're taking here beyond that. Um, well, I think it's important to acknowledge that early. I mean, I would tend to do it in the, in, in the housekeeping or setting up the, right. the day or the days or the, the start of the first call if you're doing a, uh, a sequence of events. I think that this probably comes from a number of groups that, that I've sat with who might be a bit change fatigued and they've got on any number of programs about any number of concepts. And uh, I think perhaps sometimes trainers can can make the mistake of saying, here's the latest new thing, kind of disregard what you've learned before. This is the most modern and up-to-date way of handling particular situations, you know. And uh, I think there's a danger sometimes that people become a little bit cynical. So what I've found is helpful is just to say, look, you know, I'm not going to ask you to disregard other things that you've Learn. I'm not going to teach you something that replaces those things, rather sits alongside it, you know, because you're already doing some of this stuff uh, and you're already probably getting results to some degree. Let's give you some more software, if you like, if that's a good metaphor to add to what you've already got. Uh, do you get, I was going to say, I mean, you mentioned about fatigue, but you sort of mm. said change fatigue, but I'm wondering about mm. fatigue, not fatigue, perhaps challenge in the sense that management is also about giving direction. It's about giving, having performance conversations about which, which again, have to sometimes be quite directive. Sure. Do you sometimes get that kind of clash of, of style? I don't know if that's the right word, but people are saying, well, no, management has to be more directive than this. This is a bit too touchy-feely, softy-softy. You've got to you've got to tell people what to do and give them feedback and whatnot. Yes, uh, I do get that. And I think that sometimes that's uh, an expression of discomfort um, because people would rather change. It's not easier, in it, sometimes? Do. Yeah, they'd if rather that's, change that's your style. Yeah, they'd rather change what they don't understand than change their understanding, you know. So all, all trainers are used to this, 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 this kind of uh, kicking back uh, against what we're suggesting. But I have to be honest, John, and say other times, I think it's, I think it's genuine because I think that managers, even if they like to have a coaching style as, as a default, are still going to have those occasions where they need a harder, if that's the right word, uh, approach. So. My way of dealing with this and thinking it through is to suggest that the two things aren't mutually exclusive. You can you can coach and at the same time you can still activate some other techniques if you if you need to take someone to task. What um, one does not preclude the other. Yeah, I mean you're you're running a coaching skills course here, so you're not running you're not necessarily saying that precludes every other type of management. Oh, absolutely not. No, I think it's it's important to acknowledge that. Okay, let's move on to the next one. And this mm. is around how you actually deliver the course itself. And you're saying actually use a coaching style in the way that you actually deliver the training. Yeah. So again, I, I don't think there's anything um, too complex there other than trying to be not too sort of inflexible with things, you know, to have uh, a going in agenda, but allow the group or, or your participants, however many, however few, to, to shape that really, because that's then going to be in a coaching style. If I go back to that 
uh, second of the key responsibilities that I explained, the R for responsibility. It's about putting the onus on the other person. It's about recognizing that they learn in their own way. So let's bring that to the coaching skills training as well and have the, the comfort with the subject to be able to perhaps go off piste a little bit, you know, and pursue a, a particular point of interest if it comes up. If, for example, you know, somebody is is challenging us on how, how does a coaching management style, is it compatible with, with other things? Let, let's, let's have that conversation when it comes up, if you can, because I think that that's more than in the spirit of, of learning through a, through a coaching approach. I mean, a lot of what you're doing is building skills. Um, I mean, there's an element of knowledge transfer as well. Mm. How, how do you do that in a way that is coaching style? What would that actually look like? Well, I I used to um, quite enjoy, but I mean, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm talking to you to, today, sort of still in the tail end of the uh, of the pandemic. Certainly, where I'm based here in the UK, and uh, that's very optimistic to imagine it's the tail end. But yeah, that might come back to bite you. <laughs> it, it might. Be, Seven uh, years time, still in lockdown. It's going to date this, John, isn't it? But um, yeah, you know, I used to quite enjoy doing some physical type exercises you know back in the day when we could do these these sort of things face to face you know and you would you'll have seen this sort of thing and I'm sure you use them yourselves as well I used to enjoy one where you would get people to try and um, instruct uh, a partner to stand up you know and the briefing to the partner that was lying down on the floor was you must do only what you're instructed to do and not sort of ad lib or in- interpret at all and if people were followed up the, the exercise set up properly it's nearly impossible to do that you know and that was a great way of contrasting a a directive telling type style with a more coaching approach so I think anything that you can do to enable people to try some stuff out and I'm not an expert on doing these sorts of things online you know but online versions of something participative uh, are going to be really really helpful as well just to let people sort of touch it so uh, another example would be, and again, you know, p- picking up on this idea of running the course in a coaching style is 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 break out into a little mini practice session. I mean, I tend to structure my my sessions to 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 finish with the skills practice bit, you know, for the last sort of hour or so, which I'm sure a lot of people do. But there's no harm in in I don't know how to describe it really, like a an instant impromptu breakout. Let a couple of people in the room or on the call try something. Pitch it as if it's in the middle of a coaching conversation and a particular question's come up and let them thrash that around and try a couple of different ways. This, again, is what I mean by a coaching course in a coaching style, one that's prepared to sort of play with it in the moment, John, if you like. Right. OK. So it's having that more relaxed approach. Mm. As you say, not good, as you when, when you started the, this whole conversation, you said that there's nothing wrong with the grow model. It's just that a skillful coach doesn't just go through the questions. You're listening and responding. So I guess you're saying the same thing now that a skillful facilitator is not just going through their note, their plan. They're actually listening and responding to the room. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and I guess this comes from sort of experience of, of getting that wrong, really. I, when I started out, I think prefer to stick to quite a, a rigid structure for going through the, 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 the content. You know, I was quite certain about what it is that people needed to know before they could try some stuff out, you know, and, and follow quite a, uh, like I say, a rigid learning formula. But as I became more used to the subject of, of coaching, I became more relaxed with that and was able to, to bend my agenda a, a little bit and kind of go where the participants were taking me. And, and I discovered that that worked a lot better, I think. 
Yeah, I think there's a happy medium with that, isn't there? There's, I mean, too much rigidity, I think, is, is really unhelpful. Mm. I mean, but on the other hand, I think if there's too much flex, it can, for the participants, can sometimes feel like there's, there's a lack of pace or a lack of direction. So I do, I do think there is something around yes, getting the balance sure. right there and, and doing that really with skill. Because I've been on training courses where that was done without skill. And I, as happy as I am with improvisation and ambiguity, I kind of thought, oh my God, what the hell are we doing? Where are we going here? Yeah, it's not to everyone's taste. Is it? I, I would agree there's, there's a happy medium there. I mean, I, I, like you, I think I've attended those sessions where it's like, well, what do you want to do today? <laughs> to, to me, that's a, a pendulum that's that swung too far. I think there needs to be... Uh, you know, a framework, uh, some sort of loose structure. But um... if I could just give you an example of that very quickly, I, there was one training course I was on um, for my MBA where we're doing a bit around um, creativity and innovation. And we spent three hours. This is like three hours mm. doing finger painting. Oh, and, and, I, and I tell you, by the end of it, mm. I... I I have never done finger painting, finger painting since, uh, which is probably not that big a claim. But it was <laughs> one of the most useless, you know, uses of my time possible. It, it was so frustrating because it just felt so meandering and so indulgent. Yeah, it's too far, isn't it? You yeah. Know? And, and again, I think in, in corporate environments and, and you and I, I sense both work in those environments. Um, yeah. I'm just not sure people have got the, the patience for it, frankly. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's what it's about. It's about, you know, good use of other people's time and helping them feel it's good use of their time, yeah. but doing that in a way that's responsive to the room. Absolutely. So so in that, I completely agree with you. I also think, I'm sorry to just labour this point probably a little bit too much, but I think as facilitators, as we become more experienced, we enjoy more, the more that more kind of fingertips uh, facilitation mm. where mm. you don't have that much control over what's going on but you're still able to bring it around because it's just a bit more challenging. And we've got to be careful not to indulge our own desire to make yeah, our jobs no. more interesting and challenging it's... at the expense of the learner. Okay, let's move on to the last one. And again, okay. I think that, the, the, that one we just talked about and this one I think are probably both ones that are more generally applicable. And this mm. is around including a follow-up session, which I think is a, yeah. a great point, a really important point. It, it is, yeah. And I think if I had my time again, uh, I'd have tried to do more of that part and parcel of face-to-face -face training. It, it's hard, you know, uh, to, to get people back into a room with, with, in that model because, you know, they've, they've travelled in a short time. So it, it's one thing that I found that the move to online, which I suppose for me was accelerated by COVID, although I was trying to, to move a lot of content online anyway before that, really does facilitate that more easily. And it's a, it's a definite advantage to lean into um you know short short input sessions and then the ability to to get people back around in a, in a group or subgroups or to have individual uh, follow-ups with them so I, i've started doing some of that quite recently and it really really does help so you know perhaps do less input with, with the group altogether but instead we'll have uh, an individual follow-up call uh, with each participant so that they can say, okay, Matt, well, you know, this is what I learned, but help me apply this to my particular situation. And let me tell you about my team and blah, blah, blah. And that's really great, you know, because then you're, you're really making the, the, the training uh, bespoke and they're really working with their own live uh, learning. It's, it's just about as tailor-made as you can get it. Yeah. And of course, you're reinforcing the learning as well because you're 
repeating things at, at you know time interval afterwards yeah and and again it's it's easier for people isn't it in in a in a personal follow-up call to say well you know when you explained those three principles to me matt i have to be honest and i thought you did a really terrible job of explaining them would you would you do it again um and you, do you get, get chance- do you get people saying that a lot all the time yeah um (laughs) and so well some of the time you know but uh on a joking apart it does give people to say no honestly matt yeah i didn't get that bit will you go through that again and um, i'm not sure how many people do that in the traditional sort of classroom or within a group setup yeah i agree with you i found that to be a really powerful post-covid or or in covid learning point for me which i intend now to to have as a factor of of any training that i do if i can yeah, and I think the reason most people would p- potentially argue to not do that would just be about time, which mm. I find a bit ironic as learning professionals that we would not invest the time in something that is so effective considering that we've done the course in the first place and, and this so much reinforces its effectiveness. Yeah, well, like, you know, there, there, there are other, other forces at play, I suppose, and when, when you're doing it, uh, commercially like I am you've got to get your pricing right uh, to, to make sure you're not giving too much time away um, if you're internal you've got all, all your other um, responsibilities to manage but frankly for me it's I can accommodate it quite easily because I'm not spending hours and hours in my car uh, driving up and down the country trying to get places you know so the, the kind of the quid pro quo uh, has still left me with probably more time available when it's all been offset than, than was the case beforehand. And we don't need to lose that once the, the pandemic's over. We oh. can still do a lot, you know, face-to-face where that's the right answer. But also, I think people are more uh, now more willing to engage in remote learning. Yeah, well, I think that, um, that you know, the, the, the debate that's happening at, at the moment, or certainly here where I'm in the UK, about the return to the office versus not, um, seems to be playing out in the media as a kind of a binary choice. And, and I, I just don't see that. You know, I think it will in the end, be, be some sort of blend with, with some office time versus uh, remote time where that's appropriate. And so it will apply to, to training, I think, as well, John, in my view. I think there'll still be a need to, to get people to get, or a desire, even if not a need, for that human interaction. But the sessions probably won't be as long as they used to be. And I think there'll be far more of this sort of work, you know, follow-up and implementation and review that, could, that can happen remotely uh, online. And then you get the best of both worlds. Yeah, I think hybrid is the the latest term that people are saying. So hybrid learning as well as hybrid working. Let's move on to the five don'ts. Do you want okay. to just take me through what those five are again and then yeah, we'll just sure. dive a little bit deeper on each one? Yeah, so just reading them from, again, some notes I made in advance. I had firstly try to, sorry, so this would be don't try to demonstrate coaching as the facilitator. Don't let people get away without trying. Uh, don't let them get away with, but I'm not managed this way myself. Don't allow them uh, to claim that giving instructions is is coaching. I think we've probably dealt with that a little bit earlier on. Uh, and then don't stick to one coaching field or body of research. There's good ideas in sport and consulting, psychology, therapy, etc., etc. Yeah, I guess to some extent uh, we have dealt with some of these, obviously, because th- mm. they're not quite the flip side of what we were saying, but there are obviously elements that are. Mm. But one interesting one that perhaps... Maybe it's not a flip side. It almost feels like a contradiction because you've said run your coaching course in a coaching style, but now mm. you're saying don't demonstrate coaching as a facilitator. Ah, yes. Okay. Right. Well, what what I mean is I, I wouldn't personally have let me demonstrate coaching to you as a as a topic or a session. You know, i.e., I'm going to sit out here in the front of the room, or I'm going to 
you know, handle the call. And I want a volunteer to come out of the, the room and tell me your, your topic and I will take you through the grow model or, or whatever. So I'm not talking about kind of modeling coaching behaviors throughout the training. I'm talking about not doing a specific piece of activity called either trainer will now demonstrate how to coach someone. Well, why not? Well, I found, I mean, you can, uh, and, and good luck to you, you know, if, if you want to do that. Don't, don't back off a, now, Matt. You said this is in the don'ts column. I, I guess there's an argument for it. But wh when I've tried it, it, it's just coaching sessions tend not to play out under the view of 11 other people or, or whatever, you know. So one, I think that the the trainer as coach is, is inevitably um, conscious of that. Certainly the volunteer participant is conscious of it and is probably starting to moderate what they're saying. And the other thing is that you occasionally, I think, get a cheeky participant who fancies playing the game of kill the trainer, you know, who's very deliberately <laughs> going to make your your uh, coaching demonstration look quite ham-fisted, either for mischief-making purposes or because they're just one of my cynics, you know. So I've just found it's too contrived to serve as a learning experience for the other however many people that are observing the activity. Yeah, that makes sense. Would you use a video to maybe show a coaching session? Yeah, I mean, again, if you if you can find a good one. I mean, I've, again, sort of struggled this a little bit uh, over the years because I found that people, my genuine coaching clients are understandably a little bit anxious about having that material used to, to coach others because it's private. Uh, and the other thing is, if I've sort of set up a deliberate practice coaching session in order to video it, well, it comes across as a deliberately set up practice session, which, again, sort of lacks some authenticity, I suppose. You know, so, uh, again, I come back to, in my experience, at least no substitute really for the genuine skills practice uh, and let them learn by by trying. Which I guess brings us on to the second don't, which is mm. let, don't let people get away without trying without doing the skills practice. I guess it's fairly self-explanatory, but is, is there anything more to add on that one? Yeah, so um, how I learned this one was, I discovered it in a face-to-face -face setting, but I think it, it equally applies to the online uh, setting. I would set up my trios. I, I would have them disappear around the venue, you know, to do their practice. And as trainers do, we, we pop our head around the door and see how they're doing. And I would often find people would say, well, We've got this this topic that one of us came up with, Matt, but we're, we're just sort of talking it through as a trio, you know, rather than genuinely each have the coach, coachee and the uh, observer role. And I I discovered that that was, uh, that was a bit of a get out that people were trying to use. And, and I found it was much better to be insistent and say, no, 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 I really need one of you at least to put on the coach's hat and genuinely try this out. Yeah, I've seen that before as well, because it's kind of just much easier to slip back into normal conversation and start giving everybody answers to their problems and stuff, isn't it? And Yeah, again, it's, I think it comes in part from, from being a bit issue led, which, which can happen when you've got people from the same organisation or in very similar roles. You know, they, they start getting more uh, excited about the problem itself. And so in, in setting up the coaching practice, I'm always mindful to say this is all about the person who is practicing the role of the coach. You know, if the person who's playing the part of the coachee or, or uh, undertaking that as part of the activity gets some help as a byproduct, well, great. No, that's that's brilliant. But it's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is for the person trying out the coaching techniques to learn by doing and see what works well and what works less well, et cetera, et cetera. 
That's a really, really interesting point because whenever you do coaching practice, the attention is on the coachee because coaching focuses on mm. the coachee and the coachee mm -hmm. is the one paying in, in normal circumstances. Um, yeah. and, and therefore, naturally, the sort of dynamic feels like it's the coachee that's getting the benefit. So it's a really interesting point to explicitly state that this isn't about you. It's actually about the person practicing the coaching. Well, it isn't there and then, is it? You know, on, at that particular point in time. Yeah, yeah, in that point, yeah. The, yeah. The, the reason for the coaching is for a learning experience uh, for the coach. So uh, I tend to address this tip at, at the observer because that's really the person then who's uh, who can sort of exercise some control over that, and particularly when it comes to feeding back afterwards as well. I always say try to con focus your feedback in the main uh, on what you noticed the coach doing and what was working and what seemed to be working less well, rather than, again, sort of give your two penneth to what you think the coachee should do with their problem as well. But at the end of the day, there's, there's no great harm done. People are people, and, it, and it's nice to get into these sort of discussions and help people out as well, but perhaps that can come after the formal bit of the learning activities uh, been gotten through. No, but it's a really good point, and I think you're right. You know, Put that on the observer's list of mm. things to look out for because sure. the dynamic, as I said, naturally just goes in the other direction. So it's good yeah. to just have your eye on that. Let's move on to the third one then, which mm -hmm. is let them get away with saying, but I'm not managed that way. <laughs> this yeah. is one that I haven't experienced. So I, I guess you have. Yeah, uh, and quite a lot, uh, quite a lot. There'll be people in the room and the, the penny drops uh, about what this coaching stuff is all about. And they might say something almost kind of tongue in cheek and say, well, Matt, um, this is all well and good, but the person you really ought to have in the room is not me, but my boss, because I'm... Oh, actually, I'm yeah, I have heard that, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not dealt with this way. And, and then that's often followed up with, and so it's going to be really difficult for me to manage my team that way. And, and that's at the point where I guess I become quite hard-nosed and say, well, why? I, I think is an excuse. I think I think you can. I mean, yeah, it'd be lovely if if the whole organisation from sort of top to bottom was all managed in a coaching style, but but that isn't the case. And sometimes you have to be a bit of a, uh, I suppose, a pioneer of these things. Uh, some a manager in the middle of the ranks and and do what's right for your team, irrespective of the fact that it's probably not the same way as you you're managed by your own boss. Yeah, I, th I think in all situations like that, you're never going to get the perfect manager for yourself. You've just got to do what you can, haven't you? Yeah, you can't. You can't use that yeah. as an excuse. Do what you can. Maybe you're under pressure to be more directive or something. I don't know, but do what you can. Yeah, I think with, with coaching, I mean, it reminds me of this experience I had when when I uh, explained it at, at the top of the recording that when I went on my coach training, you know, I just thought if only I'd been managed this way. I, I think there is something where when people begin to understand how powerful a coaching style of management can be. Yeah, frankly, sometimes they do get disappointed if that hasn't been their own experience. Yeah, but I say I again, it's, why, it's yeah. not an excuse. It's not an excuse, is it? Not to, not to do the right thing by your own people. No, it's actually more of a reason to do it. Yeah, yeah, good point. So the fourth one is is allow don't allow them to claim that giving instructions is coaching. So again, this is this kind of like bordering onto what's coaching, what's mentoring, perhaps. Um, again, going between that kind of coaching versus directive style of management. Yeah, I mean, I tend to try and cover that off as a as an input session. I think it's quite useful to to talk through the the differences between coaching, mentoring, training, instructing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Not because 
that's incredibly important because I think at the end of the day, the people whom we coach or whom we mentor, they, they want to be helped. They could probably care less what, what we call it. But again, in terms of training people in this these techniques, I, I found it to be quite useful to help them think through where the one sort of begins and ends or where the differences are, where, where they might overlap, certainly in terms of a discussion. But again, this tends to come out in the, in the skills practice bits where they lapse into instructing or that's so I found that the, the coaching very difficult because Jenny, who I was partnered with, started explaining her situ- situation to me. Now, I, I've, I've got no experience of that. So I couldn't I couldn't coach her. I wouldn't know how to tell her what to do. And there's a big sort of red flag there that something's gotten lost in translation over the course of the day or the other sessions that you've covered off. You know, there's, there's still this sort of reluctance to to appreciate that coaching requires us to work with the knowledge and experience of the other person more than our own. You know, the, the the coaching is about the individual learning from their own experience, not learning from the, the coach's experience, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the word coaching is, of course, used in different contexts because mm. in, in sports, a sports coach is essentially a trainer. They are a person with more, usually more knowledge, skill, experience, and they're imparting that, and they are in a kind of directive role. And that's very different than the way we're using the word coach. Well, it is. And I think that's that's been exacerbated by the proliferation now in online coaches for this, that and the other. I mean, everyone and his, his brother is a, a coach in some way, shape or form on, online these days. You know, so it makes understanding the coaching process or understanding the way in which a coaching approach enables somebody else to learn from their own experience, somewhat more difficult to convey. But again, it's quite important, I think, on a piece of coaching skills training to to allow people to explore that and and come to that understanding that when we're coaching, we are working with the other person's experience, not ours or some third parties. This kind of links to your last point, your, your, your last don't. And that is yeah. don't stick to one coaching field. And I just mentioned sports and, and you listed mm. that as one of the other fields where we might get get get, get uh, something from. Co- you said sport, consulting, psychology, yeah. therapy. Yeah. So we're defining coaching in one way, but these fields often define it in another way. So how can we bring those in without muddying the waters? Well, my particular sort of lineage, I suppose uh, I mentioned Sir John Whitmore earlier on. He was heavily influenced by Tim Galway in the the inner game series. A lot of people will say that those two guys were were the real pioneers of coaching in the early 90s and certainly brought it into sort of US, UK. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but it's it's my lineage for sure. And so a lot of the ideas that that I espouse, I guess, had their genesis in, in sport. But as I've come to to do more work in the field, John, and read more widely and had more discussions with different people, I've come to realise there's a lot of good ideas from elsewhere. So I think that you tack them on to something, though, that is core, because I agree with you, it's possible to be a bit of a butterfly and just bounce around all these different things and it it lacks coherence. So I think a core set of ideas that, that resonate with you or your organisation or the, the sort of coaching that you're being asked to train upon is useful but be open to other things because it is a very, very broad church. I mean, that brings with it its own uh, challenges, I suppose, in trying to pin it down, like we were saying on the last point, exactly what it is and what it isn't. It's not always clear cut. Uh, But I think it's being very open to the influence of these other 
fields, which are all about helping people to to grow and develop, aren't they? It will be sort of channeled through that, uh, through the modality of a one-to-one coaching conversation. So in what way might you bring those in? Can you give us an example in a, in a more specific sense? So I did some coaching. I, I normally work with uh, corporate managers, you know, so and, and that's the world I, I know and understand. So I'm going to be using examples from that that sort of world. But earlier on this year, I found myself dealing with uh, or, or passing on some coaching skills to people who were uh, counsellors for, for people suffering with cancer, be that, you know, they're either ill with it or they're sort of in, in end of life. So in preparing for that session, uh, I had to do quite a lot of uh, research into, I suppose, areas that were, were really more from the, the counselling field, you know, the, the helping professions. And to recouch some of my some of my models, some of my ideas, some of my terminology, even John, you know, to 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 resonate more in that sort of world than what I was used to. Right. So perhaps again, this takes us back to being participant focused. It's about using the language and the stories and the examples that are going to resonate most readily in their world. I suppose. Well, that's, a, that's a, I mean, that's a fascinating example, of course. And how do you bring that back into if you're just doing manager coaching in a in a workplace? How might you bring that experience with the the cancer suffering back into that environment? Well, I think again, it's probably features most in the in the setup of the training about understanding who, who the people in the room or on the call on a given day are, what background do they bring to it? I often find with with coaching as a topic that some of the experiences that people will talk about come from outside of work. So it's not unusual for me to find when I'm talking to people about coaching that when they raise their hand and say, here's a situation I'm struggling with, it it won't always be uh, a work-related one. It might often be something from uh, outside of work and that element of their personal life. In the practice sessions that they do, they might sometimes want to do something or, or bring forward an issue to discuss or get some coaching on as part of the practice that is from out of work from from their personal life so i don't think it's a hard and fast it's something that i did in the charity sector that i'm definitely going to stitch into this agenda with my corporate managers today but it's about drawing on those different things i suppose again i, I see this as part of running a coaching course in a coaching style and that being responsive to whatever's in the room yeah, and, and again, I, I don't think that uh, you need to necessarily stick to only work-related topics, discussions, examples, stories. Go with the flow. Well, thanks very much for that, Matt. It's been really interesting talking through your approach to training, coaching skills, coaching skills for managers. If people want to know more, how can they contact you? Best way these days, I think, is via LinkedIn. So I'm Matt Summers, M-A-T-T-S-O-M. ERS. Uh, I love connecting with people on LinkedIn and I love the fact that you can get a dialogue going. It's not all one way. I have a website as well, but uh, like I say, LinkedIn gives us a, a, an opportunity to get a conversation going. So that would be great if anyone wants to reach out. I'd, uh, I'd love that. Well, thanks very much, Matt. Good, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, John. All the best. Mm-hmm.